Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 63. This edition of the podcast is brought to you by my generous supporters over at Patreon, and I want to thank them so much for their support to help make the show possible. If you are interested in supporting Better Bible Reading, please go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Better Bible Reading. And when you become a patron, you will be privy to some nice bonus content and whatever else I feel like giving you in my way of saying thank you. This particular episode is all about the idea of whether or not Christians can lose their salvation. Perhaps you've asked that question. Perhaps you ask it every time you sin, whether or not this is going to cost you your salvation. It's a huge deal. And, of course, the way that we think about losing salvation or being secure in our salvation really influences what exactly it means to be saved, at least the way we understand it. So this episode is helping us wrap our minds around that by presenting to you a doctrine in the history of the church that has come to be articulated as the perseverance of the saints. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and most importantly, I hope that you are encouraged by thinking about salvation from a biblical point of view and what it means. Enjoy! This morning we're going to talk about the perseverance of the saints, which is kind of the the technical title to that last uh, point. And I want to kind of shape it, mold it in a way that is really, I hope, going to help us with our conversations with um, people who don't believe that when we're saved, we're saved. In other words, people who would say you can lose your salvation. Um, it's one thing to know what the Bible says. It's another thing to know how to articulate that to somebody else um, in an edifying way, but also a way that um, is faithful to what the Scriptures say. So, like I said, we're kind of talking about the last point of the five points of, of Calvinism, but we'll see that there's actually a whole lot of different uh, titles that have been given to this uh, P. And I did kind of a cute little subtitle here, <clears throat> Salvation with or Without Preservatives. Uh, you go to the store, you buy um, food nowadays. Uh, the cool thing is to be non-GMO or organic or gluten-free or something like that. Uh, but for the companies that aren't interested in going all out, they'll at least want to tell you that there's no artificial colors, no preservatives. Um, and normally, the best thing to get, the freshest thing to get, the thing that you can get that's always real food and not made in a science lab, is the thing that says no preservatives. There's no foreign objects put in here. There's no binders and fillers put in this food. And... Um, so the best thing to do is to buy something that says no preservatives. However, when it comes to salvation, the opposite is true. Is it better to have salvation with or without preservatives? And we're not talking about foreign things being thrown into your salvation. We're talking about what is the keeping power? What's the longevity of our salvation? That's kind of at the heart of the issue when it comes to perseverance of the saints. So to start out with, I would like to just read 
um, a generic um, kind of definition of what exactly we mean by perseverance of the saints. If you happen to have a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith handy, this is going to be in the first paragraph of chapter 17. So those of you that have a Reformation Study Bible, you'll have it somewhere in the back. I should have told you the page number, but I'm not exactly sure what page number it is. But I'll give you just a second to to go there. So this is Perseverance of the Saints. There's several paragraphs in this chapter, but I'll just read the first one because the first one kind of just gives a broad definition, and then the next paragraphs kind of tackle the particulars of it. But here's what it says. It says, They whom God hath accepted in His beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Now, notice that in that very last line, the way they describe salvation is by saying, Eternally saved. What does eternally mean? Forever, Forever, right. Never ceasing, everlasting, forever. This uh, concept of the perseverance of the saints also, if we wanted to make a subcategory of it, it would be actually what, well, I'll go ahead and get this back, because it's actually what the next chapter in the Confession of Faith is. So you have in chapter 17, you have the perseverance of the saints. Then in chapter 18, you have assurance, and specifically assurance of grace and salvation. And those two really go together because when we're talking about the concept of salvation, if it's eternal or not, it naturally brings the question for us as those who are participating in or receiving salvation, okay, what's my assurance in this salvation? Is there assurance in this salvation? And let me read now the first paragraph of chapter 18. And there's what it says of the assurance of grace and salvation. It says, although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So, confession definitely wants to make the point that there is such thing as a false hope. There is such thing as a false security. But there is also such thing as true hope and true, assur- true assurance. And that's what we want to talk about when, it, when we want to think about salvation and what we call perseverance of the saints. Do we persevere? Do those? Yeah, good. Yeah, and we and we'll get to this. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, alternate titles to this because historic reform theology 
um, typically refers to this whole concept, like I said, as the perseverance of the saints. But there's been different titles given to this. Um, if you're in the kind of Baptist uh, context, um, the phrase that they like to use is eternal security. Um, as a matter of fact, I think that's actually the head of doctrine on the Baptist faith and message. Um, and so Baptists, um, <clears throat> especially those who are historical Baptists, would share with, with us um, with the idea of eternal security. Um, R.C. Sproul, I don't know how many of you have read or listened to his lecture series, What is Reformed Theology? Um, but he actually walks through um, these five points. And he kind of gives an uh, alternate title to all of them. Um, and he uh, likes to use, instead of the perseverance of the saints, he likes to use the phrase the preservation of the saints because it kind of gets at what Brother Sam was talking about. Our vantage point moves from the saint being able to persevere in and of himself, which is kind of um, a misconception of how we look at it, to the preservation of the saints, which, of course, moves the vantage point from us to God. So just like he said, you know, God's ability to keep us. That's kind of what we're talking about with salvation. Who saves us? Okay, well, if God is the one that saves us, then being in a state of salvation, we should look to the one that saved us and his ability to keep saving us. And um, in a more negative connotation, um, we have two... uh, denominations that would teach absolutely like they just reject this idea of, of eternal security. And that would be, uh, at least the two largest ones would be the United Methodist Church and the Church of God. Um, in fact, to my knowledge, all Pentecostal theology uh, rejects the idea of eternal security. Um, and that's there's a lot of different forms. you got the the holiness movement, you got oneness, you got all these different like varieties of Pentecostalism. But I'd say Church of God <clears throat> is probably the, the largest Pentecostal denomination in our in our country. And then of course the United Methodist Church is a massive uh, denomination <clears throat> and they would be of the theology of John Wesley, which is um, Arminianism. And of course we know that these five points were not just invented one day. It wasn't these closet Calvinists getting together on a dark night in a dark room and saying, let's, let's make up this system of theology and let's just propose it to everybody. That's, that's not how it worked. In fact, um, those of you who um, are familiar with church history, especially here because we've actually um, just hit the 400th anniversary of Dort, which was where this whole conversation came up. And um, a a proper historical um, timeline is that Calvinism as such was the historic doctrine of the church. These were a response. These were an answer to theological systems and doctrines that were being brought up by those who were in Arminian theology. So this was not a, let's just propose this and make everybody believe this. This was, here's our historical response to your claims. So it's really important that we think of it that way. Yep. Our Arminius nor John Calvin were at Dort. Right. And actually, if you look, those of you who have Reformation Study Bibles, this is actually not even the order that these were uh, covered in, because they covered them in the order that these concepts were brought to them. So it's actually 
was U-L-T-I-P was the order, and you can actually see it in your Reformation Study Bible because you have the, the canons of Dort written in there. So historically, they actually didn't even cover total depravity first. They actually covered unconditional election first. Um, but that's kind of just a, I guess they just rearranged it just to have a, a good working acronym. Yeah, ULTIP doesn't really ring off the tongue quite as well as, as TULIP does. Um, but if you look at uh, the United Methodist Church, I, last night I was just looking to see, do they cover this in an explicit way? And the United Methodist Church and the Church of God both uh, cover this. And the way that they do, like I said, in the Methodist Church and Church of God, there's a kind of tongue-in-cheek or negative phrase used. And it's, in my experience, it's always used for those who reject the idea of eternal security or the idea of the perseverance of the saints. And then you'll hear it said this way, once saved, always saved. And in my experience, the only time that I've heard that phrase is by those who disagree. So, you, oh, I'm sorry. So, <laughs> you're grunting for me. Thanks. <laughs> um, and what bothers me is that when I see it written, especially on the, on the Church of God website, is that it's written with quotation marks. And they just keep using those quotation marks. And I thought it was kind of, and this is not necessarily to speak for all of Church of God, because I know I mean, people in my family are, are Church of God, and they're not like rude, arrogant people. But on the official website, that kind of speaks for the denomination. And the way it's written is, you keep hearing this concept of so-called Protestants evidently believe in once saved, always saved, and they just run through and try to demolish the doctrine. But they use it because the idea of once saved, always saved is kind of a clever way of molding or framing this whole idea in a sense that says you can do whatever you want and as long as you're saved you can never lose your salvation. And of course we who believe that if you're saved you will continue to be saved would never want to frame it that way because that's just completely misleading anybody from listening to that and saying, "Oh, we believe that, you know, if you're if you're the elect, you're just you're caught in grace and you can do whatever you want and those who are like fighting to get through the doors, I'm sorry, you're not chosen, you can't be in here and and that's just a, a false way of even looking at what we're saying. It's a false way of looking at Scripture. And it's easy to, from their point of view, it's easy to dismiss when you actually um, present the other's case in an incorrect way to start with. It kind of goes back to our whole conversation of Reformed theology and dispensationalism. And what I was stressing in that whole series was that we want to understand the opposite position properly. We don't want to go by caricatures. We don't want to take the worst possible um, example of this opposing view and say, this is what you guys all act like and look like. And, that, and that's not fair to do to us either with the once saved, always saved, tongue-in-cheek phrase. But it's, it's important for us to understand that because in my opinion and in my kind of on the outside looking into a lot of people who this whole idea has been coming up because Pentecostalism has really just skyrocketed, especially um, back home uh, in, in uh, St. Mary's where I'm at because the big churches are some kind of charismatic church. Or at least there's a, there's a press towards that. 
Um, you look at Jacksonville um, um, Celebration Church. Uh, the pastor there now has just fully embraced um, charismatic theology, and that's a massive church. I don't know if you've driven by it, but it's a humongous church. Um, they didn't really start out that way, but there's this concept for Pentecostalism and charismatic theology just kind of creeping in. But what comes with that and the package deal is a rejection of eternal security or once saved, always saved. And we'll talk about why that is in just a minute. But when I've had conversations with people and tried to talk to them about the fact that God does preserve his saints. God's saints do persevere until the end. I think that there's a root question that really needs to be brought up behind that. Now, we can, we can exchange Scripture for Scripture. Um, they'll most likely want to go to Hebrews 6 or Hebrews 10. Those are kind of the two, the two uh, Scripture references that they'll use. But there should be a follow-up question to this whole idea. So we don't want to just think about is once saved, always saved true? But there's really an underlying question that is going to determine what conclusion we come to, and that's this. What is salvation? In my experience, what comes to light again and again is that those who would reject the once saved, always saved, or reject the perseverance of the saints actually have a different view of salvation to begin with. And because of their low view of salvation it becomes more conceivable that you could actually lose it. Because at the root of it, the nature of salvation, the way it occurs, what it is, is different from what we're saying. Now, I don't want to go too far and say that they have a different gospel altogether. That may be true in some circumstances. It doesn't mean that every single Pentecostal person is not a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. But if you have a wrong view of what salvation actually is, well, it's going to lead to a wrong view of what eternal security is and what once saved, always saved is. So I think it's important for us, those of us who have, does anybody have Pentecostal family members or friends who are kind of in that? Is that kind of a big thing around here? I've seen a lot of Baptist churches and stuff, but yeah. So those of you who interact with people and the conversation of can you lose your salvation or not comes up, I would really encourage you to go to the root of the issue. Don't go to the surface level, can we lose it or not. Let's go a little bit deeper and ask some pressing questions of, what do you actually believe about salvation? Tell me, just give me a definition of what is salvation? And let that kind of steer your conversation a little bit. Like I said, we can get in the, in the, in the um, Scripture verse war. You see it on Facebook discussions all the time. You know, I'll raise you your verse with this verse, and mine counts twice as much as yours does type thing. Because uh, it has twice as many words as yours does. So this kind of second level conversation, at least from what I've read on the United Methodist Church website and the Church of God website, is there's a substitution of terms happening a lot. So you'll hear instead of just, do you believe a Christian can lose your salvation? That's like the explicit question you can ask. But they would say, Sometimes you like to use the word lose. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they want to use the word forfeit or just fall away. And there's kind of a trading in of, of, of phrases here and there uh, with, the, <clears throat> with the whole conversation. Uh, for example, on the Church of God website, 
it is just kind of how you described it. It's about God is here cheering us on and being everything we need. However, we're right here and it's our job to always be in that close vantage point. And at any time, God's not going to... I'm trying, I'm trying to remember exactly how they said it. It was, it was kind of a sarcastic thing of like... Uh, kind of the, the thing that we hear a lot, like God's not going to force anybody to do anything the way that Calvinists say they will. So at any time, since we have free will, we can kind of move away. And our vantage point becomes further and further and further from God until the point where we actually lose the salvation. And this really came up for me because I'd heard so many conversations, especially in Pentecostal theology, getting rebaptized. And the rebaptism, and this is water baptism, not their idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, but Water baptism, you rededicate your life, get baptized again. You get further in your life, you understand your salvation more, you understand baptism more, get rebaptized. <clears throat> and I remember talking to my wife about this because we just see stuff all over Facebook about this. And we were like, you know, if that was true, <clears throat> shouldn't every legitimate Christian keep getting rebaptized for the whole rest of your life? Because shouldn't a good Christian always come to understand their salvation to a fuller extent as you grow? That means that really we should keep getting baptized again and again and again. And in this whole system, if you can lose your salvation, then it's even more appropriate to get rebaptized. Because my last baptism accounted for my last salvation, but I've lost my salvation. I've walked away from Christ for five years. Now I've come back. Now I'm getting rebaptized again. Is this a rededication or a resalvation? We're not really sure. You know, that that it just gets so confusing. And I think one of the things that they that they would do, and this is not just Church of God, this is just anybody who would have this system, is that really it's not only a misconception of salvation or misconception of what is eternal security, but it's also a misconception of the purpose of the sacraments. That concept or that kind of desire to reaffirm your allegiance to Christ and everything like that, well, that's what the Lord's Supper is for. And yet there's a low view of the Lord's Supper and what it is, is and in that sense is just a memorial <clears throat> where they're substituting what they're trying to do in baptism for what's appropriate in the Lord's Supper because we're reaffirming our union with Christ in the Lord's Supper, right? We're being ministered to by Christ. We're being given sustaining grace in the Lord's Supper. But if it's, if it's just purely just a kind of remembrance, well, it doesn't really do anything for us. So then we got to find something that does something for us. So we just, let's just keep getting baptized again. And again, th- these are all these kind of outlying problems that really come to the root of the question, what exactly do you believe salvation is? And so now that we've kind of thrown all that stuff out there, let's kind of bring it all in with a lot of different uh, verses of Scripture. The first one I want you to look at is in John <clears throat> chapter 5. If we want to understand salvation, and if we have it, eternally or not. Let's look at John 5, and we can look in, starting in verse 19. And actually, let's, let's start in 18. That'll be better. 
And would somebody please like to read verses 18 through 29, John chapter 5. We have a, quite a bit more scripture to take a look at, and I want to at least look at all of them. So we won't spend a whole lot of time kind of exposing all of this, but just to point out here, what Jesus does here is he lays the groundwork of claiming absolute authority. Starts out in verse 18. He was making himself equal with God. All that the Father does, the Son does likewise. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. There's this idea of absolute authority that Christ has. And then he says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from life to death. And then he moves to the end of that, says kind of a parallel idea. Verse 28, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So a couple things that we want to look at that he does here. First of all, he lays claim to absolute authority. Second, he defines salvation as eternal life. Now, if you don't believe in once saved, always saved, as I don't like that phrase, but that's the one that they want to use to dismiss this. If you don't believe in once saved, always saved, you can't call it eternal life. You have to call it temporal life. Because salvation, by definition, in the Bible, is eternal. I mean, that speaks to just the... I mean, I don't know how more basic we can get. How do we understand salvation? Eternal life. Everlasting life. Never ceasing life. If you have it, you have it. Period. Eternally. The longevity of it never ends. Because, why? It is grounded in the one who lays claim to absolute authority. So Jesus makes a claim of absolute authority. Then he describes the salvation he gives as eternal life, passing from death to life. And then he says this, that the one who has it does not come into judgment. <clears throat> and that judgment, he mentions again at the end of this passage, verse 28 and 29, this judgment he's talking about happens at the resurrection at the end of the days. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In other words, if you have eternal life, you will have it forever. It lasts all the way through. And when he says that this one has it and doesn't come into judgment, the context is you're not going to lose it from the time you have it to the final judgment. If you have it, he's already seeing the kind of the future outcome of it. If you have it, you do, not, you do not go into judgment. And that judgment is Jesus' final judgment at the end of the day. So this, again, Jesus doesn't use the phrase once saved, always saved. He doesn't use the phrase eternal security, but he does use the phrase eternal life. And again, if we're going to understand what once saved, always saved, or the perseverance of the saints means... We should ground it in what salvation is. And Jesus says salvation is passing from death to life, having eternal life. 
and it's grounded in the one who has absolute authority. And if something has absolute authority and gives you eternal life, I mean, where, where, is, your, where is your opponent going to rise to? How does, a, how does an opponent to steal or, or take away eternal life, how can that opponent ever rise to the one that has absolute authority? That's the whole point of what he's saying. Nothing can. Paul says, neither death nor life or anything can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can. Another one we want to look at is in Ephesians chapter 2. I've got to move a lot faster. Ephesians 2, you, you, you all, I'm sorry. And again, this, this idea is not to give us ammunition for argument. It's to give us discernment for how to direct the conversation that we're going to have with people. Uh, that's a, and that's a huge difference. And I hope that you understand we're not just loading our chamber with, with verse bullets to destroy people with. Uh, Ephesians 2. Paul used the same phrasing that Jesus just used when it comes to salvation. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of God like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. I'm going to have some emphasis here as I continue reading. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, as I said, many of you heard this, this uh, section of Scripture time and time again. And it's a beautiful section of Scripture. It talks about our salvation but it's not just a contrast from being dead to being made alive. It's a contrast of being in the world to being in Christ. And who is this Christ that we are in and with? Very end of chapter 1. He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now what Paul actually does in Ephesians 1 is the same exact thing that Jesus did in John 5. In Ephesians 1, Paul lays the claim of absolute authority of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 2, he says that we in our salvation are in and with Him. In and with the Christ who has absolute authority. If that is true, and we understand what having this union with Christ is and what it means, there is no conceivable possibility of losing that salvation. And again, this mentions, it's, a, it's just a different formulation altogether of God is here, He's all sufficient for us, but we're here and it's our job to keep getting that close vantage point. Well, 
that's just foreign to what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying, salvation is not being vantage point in Christ. We are bonded and sealed together with Him. So whatever is true of Him, and this is not to get into we don't become gods, but whatever is true of Him is true of us, which means that if He possesses life eternal in and of Himself, we have that because we are with Him and in Him. So you can't lose that. But also, we don't become in bondage to sin because we're made alive with Christ. And one of the best places to go is back in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36. And this speaks to really one of the most important aspects of this. As you're turning to Ezekiel 36, we'll look at verse 22. In... um, the uh, dismissal of eternal security, they will say that basically it comes down to a rejection of Calvinism because they'll say Calvinism basically teaches that God forces us to do stuff. Meanwhile, those who are diligently trying and seeking, if they're not saved or not elect, they, they don't have a chance. And I want to show you how that's just not true. It's a wrong way of of forming um, the whole argument. But Ezekiel 36, in verse 22, listen to the way that God describes what He does in a work of regeneration. Here's what it says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. This is the important part here that I want to show you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. One of the things that we talk about a lot with the idea of salvation is God gives us a new heart. And that's what you see being described here. Well, in that new heart is a package deal, if you will. With that, he says that he'll put his spirit in us and cause us to walk in his statutes and cause us to be careful to obey his rules. Now, what he's saying there, there's a package deal of justification and sanctification. He'll give us the new heart. He'll make us a new creature. And with that, He will cause us to walk in His ways. Now, 
We have to be careful because the one who would reject this idea will say, see, you're making it sound like God makes us do everything. God's now making us robots. But notice that he gives us a new heart. And what Paul had said in Ephesians 2 is that our old heart had old desires. But now we're made alive with Christ. And what is a desire? Well, it's something you want to do. Something you intend to do. Well, when God gives us a new heart, the reason that he causes us to walk in his ways is because we have new desires that want to. So it's not a matter of becoming a robot and now I'm, I have to be godly because he's making me be godly. But we have a new heart that has the desire to be like our Savior. We're doing what we want to do. We're not being, we're not, our arms not being twisted behind our back. We're not robots. We're making choices, making decisions, but they conform to what is pleasing to God because He's given us the new heart to have a propensity towards that. And that's so important because that means that if we are truly saved, then we've been truly given a new heart and we will be careful to obey all that God has commanded. Wait, did you raise your hand? Did somebody raise their hand? Okay. Um, <clears throat> and that's, that's really important. It's so important for us to understand the nature of salvation. One last one we'll look at. And then we're running short on time. Um, I'll just actually reference this, but will you, if you will, turn to uh, 1 John 2. This is that, that Brother David mentioned earlier, 1 John 2, John is talking about antichrists in the world, and don't think left behind antichrists, think those who are against Christ, generally speaking, okay? 1 John 2, verse 18 Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And then here's the contrast. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have and you all have knowledge. So there's a contrast happening here. Now, if we believe that you could actually have salvation and then lose it, then it would make sense to read this in a different way. John would say something like, they went out from us, but they're no longer of us. Because for a time they were of us, as long as they were with us. But now that they're not with us, they're not of us anymore. They've walked away from the faith. But he says, they went out from us, but they were not. They were not of us. If they were, they wouldn't have fallen away. And Jesus, in his teaching of the final judgment in Matthew 7, says, Many will come to me in that day, saying, Lord, Lord, here's my spiritual resume. Surely I'm not not of those who are of you. And Jesus says, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never 
knew you. Jesus doesn't say, I did and now I don't. He doesn't say you were and now you're not. He says, I never knew you. The Bible makes clear that those who fall away, if you want to put it in our Presbyterian terminology, may well have been of the visible church, may well have been outwardly involved in things, just like Judas was, right? When Jesus said in the Last Supper, one of you is going to betray me, nobody, it's not like everybody in the circle turned their chairs towards Judas and gave him the evil stare, like they knew it was going to be him. Nobody knew because outward appearances show that he's just like us. That's why it was a betrayal. Nobody saw it coming besides, of course, Christ. But those who fall away are those who Jesus never knew. Those who fall away are those who are never of us, is what John and Jesus both are saying here. So, and the reason that's the case is because we can have outward appearances. You know, it's sad, but it's really easy to look spiritual for an hour a day on Sunday. It's, it's so easy to put on a face because that's what the world does. Everybody puts on a face. Everybody you run into at work, you normally just run into a surface level expression of the true person, if that makes any sense, right? Those of you who are really good friends with somebody know that person at a much deeper level than the surface level. And really when we come here, it's a dangerous game sometimes because it's so easy to look spiritual and act spiritual for one day a week. But what about the other six days a week? What about the rest of today? You know, I mean, <clears throat> when you start, I've, I've realized this in my earlier years in ministry, one of the places that you really get to know somebody and <laughs> whether they have a short fuse or not and what they're really all about is to go with them to youth camp for a week. And uh, you'll quickly figure out that you may not have been as spiritually mature as you thought you were, or these other people that you've looked up to a lot are actually, they're just jerks, right? But um, it, it's, so, it's so important for us to understand not just whether you can lose your salvation or not, but what is the nature of salvation? And if the nature of salvation is everything we looked at this morning, then number one, there's no possible way we can lose it, but number two, there's no possible way that we can live in sin if we truly have it. That's why Peter says, make your calling and election sure. Prove it. Certify it. Show that you have salvation with preservatives. The good ones that God has given us, that is all that He's given us for life and godliness. Peter says He's given us everything for that. Everything towards life and godliness. Like I said, there's so many outlying kind of displays of kind of misconception of what salvation is, what Christ did, the sufficiency of it. And it's, I just really want to give these all as, as talking points to all of us um, because it's so important that we have a right view. I mean, it's the most important thing that we could possibly have a right view of, and that is the nature of our salvation. And I think if we understand it, we can, we can begin to understand why those who have written the, the hymns in our Trinity hymnal can use such wonderful, joyous language of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done and how much glory is due to Him. Because we're just tickled to death, if you want to put it that way, of, of our salvation. And 
how secure we are in the hands of our Savior. So um, it's 10.30. Anybody have any closing comments before we, uh, before we dismiss? Okay, thanks for your time. Let me pray for us. Well, thanks for listening to that episode. Of course, when we think about doctrine, sometimes it's common for us to feel like to each his own. If somebody wants to articulate a doctrine in some way, fine by me. They can go ahead and do that. It doesn't affect me. And I, on the other side, am free to articulate the way that I want. But when it comes to a doctrine such as salvation, I don't really know that you can get much more crucial than that particular doctrine in terms of how we understand it. How big of a deal is it for somebody to say, I believe my salvation cannot be lost, and another person say, I believe my salvation can. I mean, clearly those are mutually exclusive ideas, and both sides cannot be right. And so what do we do with that? Well, we try to be well-informed. We try to be very saturated in what the Bible says. That's what this episode was all about, giving you a good vantage point to really think through the idea of salvation. What is it that we're saying when we're saying that we are saved. Well, hopefully this is some good food for thought for you. And I want to, again, just thank you for all of your support and for listening to the Better Bible Reading Podcast. I will see you on another episode real soon. Take care.